0: When I moved to Los Angeles, it was pretty easy to find a community. Within a matter of a few weeks, I joined a gym where I met my first gay friend in the city. Soon, he invited me to play on his gay kickball team. From that team, I met dozens of other gay men in Los Angeles, and many of them now form the core of my social circle. And with these connections, I've been able to traverse a large part still just a fraction, of the vibrant gay world of the city, including the gay mecca of West Hollywood. If you've never been, it's something like a gay Disneyland. Lights, music, drag queens, and go-go dancers, all packed in a tiny sliver of Los Angeles County, measuring less than two square miles. On a Saturday night, everywhere you look, you see hordes of gay men, LA is one of the most bustling, exciting queer cities on earth. But sometime over the past two years, I looked around and asked, where are all the lesbian bars? And if you do the research, you'll find that there are 34 gay bars in Los Angeles, almost completely owned, operated and patronized by men. And how many lesbian bars? Zero, not a single one. In this episode, I find out why. I'm Eric Cervini, and this is The Deviant's World. The name of our kickball team was Thirst Aid. Our uniform looked like that of a lifeguard, with a big white cross on a red tank top. Our names on the back were medical-related one player was dr prepper and every saturday afternoon i was by far the worst player on the team but no matter what i could always count on one person to cheer me on kelly was the only woman on the team and she was one of the best players a lesbian she's blonde and has big blue eyes she often gets comparisons to amy adams i caught up with her a few days ago so she could help me crack the case of the missing lesbian bars.
1: Yeah, so that's something that absolutely bothered me the second I moved out here. I had no clue what to make of it. I tried asking around, seeing if anyone happened to know of any lesbian bars. Everyone kind of was very confused and said, oh, like the gay bars are in West Hollywood. And I was like, no, I get that. (laughs) However, those are very heavily catered towards men.
0: If we sound a little out of breath or the audio doesn't sound that great, it's because we were chatting while walking from one bar to another on the west side of Los Angeles. They were straight bars. But one thing that Kelly made clear is that finding other lesbians in a city that lacks designated spaces for them is not easy.
1: I was not actually, I didn't come out um, until the very end of college, like at the tail end. Um, So something I used to always say is it felt like I was late to the party. Uh. Like everyone else had kind of been doing their like lesbian and gay thing for a while. And I was kind of coming to the scene a little bit late. So when I moved here, I really had no clue how to get involved, like what was expected, what should I be doing? um, Besides like just going out in West Hollywood, but that's kind of like its own scene. Um, And something that I found is, a lot of bars would have like a ladies night, which was meant to be for lesbians, bisexual women, but it would always be on like a Wednesday or a Thursday, which for most people is not a practical night to like go out and about and like meet other women. So something I started looking into was like, why do we not have lesbian bars in L.A.? And is this like only an L.A. problem? And as I was kind of hunting around, I found that not only an L.A. problem, it's kind of a national issue. Um, San Francisco historically had some lesbian bars. They were often like victims of hate crimes. They were rapidly shut down. And in the grand scheme of things, unfortunately, most lesbian bars just can't earn enough money to stay open. And kind of from looking into it, the biggest issue is that a woman-centered queer bar only serves queer women. If we look at a gay bar in West Hollywood that's made for men, it's actually having a variety of clientele. So we have gay men looking for other gay men.
0: Mm-hmm. We
1: also, whether we like it or not, we have straight women who are there for either the novelty of the experience, it feels comfy, it feels fun, or maybe they genuinely feel this is a much more safe place for me to go out when I'm with my girlfriends. I'm not concerned about violence, someone harassing me. Um in West Hollywood we also have two. Tourists, maybe people from other towns where they wouldn't feel comfortable going and checking Mm. out what their queer scene would look like. So essentially, we have a whole bunch of groups that are very interested in going to this male gay bar. But if we think of a lesbian bar or a queer bar for women, none of those people are interested in going and spending money because gay men already have their own scene. Straight women don't feel comfortable. They're nervous they might be hit on. They might be (laughs) put in an awkward position. Straight men very quickly figure out These women are not here for my pleasure. (laughs) They will not make out for me. So they're not interested. So we're kind of left with no one left besides just gay women. Depending on where the bar is located, it just might not earn enough revenue to stay open.
0: So for everyone else, like I'm so lucky to have met you through our kickball team. But like for all other queer women in the city, how do they find or where do they find spaces for themselves?
1: So I think... We have seen a little bit of a shift in certain neighborhoods that tend to have a lot more queer women. Silver Lake is often seen to be that way. It's like unofficially a little bit more of a lesbian neighborhood nowadays. Mm. Some of the bars tend to have more lesbians. But unfortunately, there's still no like dedicated space where queer women know like I can go here. I can meet other queer women, whether it's friends, dating, etc., um, so I think we're kind of left with a word of mouth situation where someone like me, who moved here with really no plug-in, is still kind of left swimming and trying to figure out where can I go to meet these other women. Regardless if I'm looking for like a connection or dating, um, it just feels really empty, honestly. It's it's like this is fucked up. Like it's like an yeah. issue where it's like this is
0: so unfair and like just crazy that it doesn't exist mm-hmm. in LA, a huge like massive city.
1: I think also part of it is there might be a misconception of, like, what do women want? Which, like, obviously we see that across the world. Like, what really is the goal? Like, a woman existing? But I've even felt with some of my, like, my gay friends from Kickball that they'll be taken aback. That, like, no, I, too, do want to go meet someone and hook up with them. Like, that's okay that I want that. Like, you want that too. And it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. that I have very similar feelings. So I have friends that, like, happen to meet someone out and they'll be like, I met this girl. You should totally, like, link up with her. Honestly, though, she's really only looking to, like, kind of casually date people. And it's like, oh, that's fine. And I think they it takes them a while to be like, no, no, no. Like, I don't think you get what she's interested in. It's like, no, that's fine. I actually, too, might be interested in that. In and know, like, I would love a bar where I can go casually meet women, like that actually might still take some people aback that although there is like of course a place for like romantic dating and like long-term relationships not every single person will always want that the same with men the same with women like i too want an opportunity to just casually meet someone but that still somehow takes people by surprise even other members of the community
0: do you think there're going to ever exist a bar that is for queer men and women and everything in between equally like
1: I really like to think so. I don't know in practice what that would look like because as we said before, we've already seen gay bars for men that are kind of being encroached on by other people for a variety of reasons, some of which just aren't legitimate and kind of makes a mockery of the idea of like a safe space, a place where like gay men can hang out with gay men. So in theory, that would be wonderful. I just don't know, like what would it take to make everyone feel comfortable and make it so clear that like this is the intention of the space. And then also like, Are there versions of that that aren't overly sexualized and like pumped with alcohol? Mm. Like, could we ever see a coffee shop that's made for like gay men and gay women and actually serves that purpose? Or does it end up becoming just a coffee shop?
0: As, you know, a privileged white guy, what can we do to like help, do you think? So
1: I think part of it is showing up for queer women in spaces that it might not occur to you. So if we think of like a movie coming out that has gay men in it, like, Just speaking from myself and from some of the other queer friends I have, I'm going to go to that movie. I'm going to support it. That is so exciting that we have a major film with a gay man in it. However, how many of my gay male friends can say the same if a movie came out with two lesbians in it? Would they be interested? Some of them might be really excited to go support it. For the most part, you might not be lining up for it. So I think finding the small opportunities to support other lesbian women, even if it doesn't necessarily serve you. Maybe you're not that excited to see this movie. it's a really big deal and you're giving money towards something that supports other gay women and just like finding little opportunities like that like on the kickball team i was one of like very few women yeah and that was okay it was very exciting but if you happen to know a woman like inviting her to things like that or i had some incredible allies on the team that would ask me like hey is there a bar we can take you to where you can meet other women (laughs) and even just asking that question like means the world that was so exciting like Gay men had never asked me that before. Asking, like, what can I do to, like, help you meet another woman? Even though I didn't have an answer for it because there wasn't a bar for us to go to, Uh. it meant a lot that someone, like, volunteered that they were willing to show up in a space that, like, didn't really serve them because it would serve me. And that was really exciting to, like, use their privilege and their opportunity to, like, help me meet other women, essentially.
0: So we ended up at a friend's birthday party, which was of course, filled with gay men. Kelly really is the best. And her explanation about the economics and demographics of lesbian bars was helpful. But here's the thing. From studying the early gay rights movement, I knew that lesbian bars used to exist. In fact, some early activists were frustrated by their centrality in lesbian subculture. So the question is, what happened? Why did lesbian bars once thrive, but as Kelly explained, they're now economically unsustainable? I needed to talk to a historian.
2: I came out into uh, the working-class gay girls, as we called ourselves, bar culture as a teenager with a phony ID in 1956.
0: Professor Lillian Faderman has been described as the mother of lesbian history. She wrote Surpassing the Love of Men, one of the first histories of lesbianism in America in 1981, and since then she's won six Lambda Literary Awards, including one for Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, A History of Lesbian Life in 20th Century America. Now at the age of 79, she lives with her partner of almost 50 years in San Diego. So I took a train down from L.A. to speak with her in her home.
2: And I uh, I had a friend who was a gay boy. He was three years older than I was, so he needed a phony ID. But one day he told me that uh, he wanted to uh, take me to some bars where men hang out, uh, gay bars. And he, he got me my ID. And he took me to two or three gay men's bars. And he said, and you know, there, there uh, are bars for girls like this, too. And I said, oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know how he knew about the open door, but that's where he took me. It was on 8th and Vermont.
0: According to Faderman's other book, Gay L.A., there were already several all-lesbian bars by the 1920s. And after World War II, Lesbian L.A. was flourishing, full of bars.
2: Um, Los Angeles, of course, was a, a port city, and there was a big defense industry, and I think a lot of lesbians were in the military or came to Los Angeles to work in the defense industry from little places in the Midwest or the South or whatever, realized that yeah, you know, this is a big city. It, it has anonymity which was very important for lesbians. Uh, You're away from your family. You could do as you please. But together with anonymity, because it was such a big city, it also made community possible. And so you could find other lesbians as you couldn't if you lived in the middle of of nowhere in a small town or a rural area or or whatever. And so I think that's what made Los Angeles so attractive. And I I think it was probably that way with uh, other port cities as well, where uh, people came to work, uh, or they came for R&R. They were in the military, um, certainly true of New York, uh, San Francisco.
0: um. And at these bars, you were either butch or you were femme.
2: It was very clear immediately that people were into the butch femme scene. It was one of the first things I was asked. I don't know why it wasn't obvious from my dress that first of all I was a newbie and I didn't know from Butch at that time. <laughs> but um, you know, it was sort of like I, I took one look around and it was an epiphany for me and I realized this was where I wanted to be. and Of course I didn't drive but I took buses the following weekend to go back to to that bar on 8th and Vermont. Um, and I discovered there was another lesbian bar across the street called the If Club. In fact, um, I, I met this woman uh, who was a butch. Not that I think of myself as a femme anymore, but in those days, one had to choose in the bar culture. Um, and she, we, we were at the open door, and she wanted to go to the If Club. So we jaywalked, holding hands across the street. And a cop car came by just at that time and he made us get into the car and he pulled around and, and parked on a side street, told her to get out of the car. I was scared as hell. He told her to go sit near a tree and he just lectured me and he just he just said, you look like a nice girl and that one over there is bad news and and you really have to stop doing this. And of course I said, yes, sir. And Miraculously, he didn't ask to see an ID, which he probably would have seen was phony, and he just, he let us go.
0: In the 1950s, gay and lesbian bars were often raided by the police. If you were arrested, you were forever marked, to future employers, to your parents, and sometimes to the media, as a sexual deviant.
2: I, uh, I was never in a raid, but... I had been in in bars um, and left and I was told that a few hours later or the next day or whatever, there was a police raid, it happened all the time. And I knew that they figured out to pay off the police or whatever you had to do to make the place safe. Um, So those were my, uh, essentially my experiences in Los Angeles in the 1950s. I I knew other working class gay girls bars and I discovered another bar that was kind of like um the Club Laurel and that was Joni Presents that was also in the the uh, valley
0: and not only were there lesbian bars there were different types of lesbian bars more than a decade before the Stonewall riots
2: the the bars were really they were kind of stratified by by class. There was the working class gay girls' bars, and then there were places that were more like cocktail lounges, or maybe Joni Presents was more like a nightclub. There were many bars, yes, many more than than the ones that I mentioned. I remember I went uh, dancing at a place called the Paradise Club in the 1950s, and another place called the Star Room. Uh, and then when I came back, there were other bars in, um, in North Hollywood and in, in the Valley. Um, there was, uh, I think it was called the um, Oxbow uh, that was very popular. It was kind of a beer bar in the Valley. But there, there were numerous bars in the uh, late 1950s and early 1960s.
0: And based on Kelly's description of the difficulty of finding lesbian community without lesbian bars, I asked her about the role of the bars in her own coming out process. They
2: were crucial. How else would I have met lesbians as a sixteen-year-old, uh, or even later? We were just so hidden and so unapparent. And I'm, you know, I'm sure we made up at least at least five percent of the women's student body. Uh, uh, let alone gay men, who, of course, were probably even more numerous. But there was just no visible sign of it in in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So you had to go to these lesbian bars, or if you were a man, I guess you could cruise on the streets. Lesbians didn't do that. But but where else would, would gay people meet if not the bars?
0: But lesbians did have one other way to meet lesbians. And it wasn't kickball, but it was close.
2: Lesbians did have one other um, outlet, and that was softball teams. Mm. But... These softball teams were frequently sponsored by the bars, and so you you didn't even know to get onto a softball team or be in the audience unless you you, uh, uh, were part of the bar cultures.
0: Because lesbian subculture was so dominated by these bars, some activists decided to create their own organizations so that lesbians had the ability to meet one another outside of alcohol-filled, often lower-class establishments. This was the case for Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, America's first lesbian organization.
2: Because Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon uh, went to the bars in San Francisco. It scared the hell out of them. They were middle-class women. And what they wanted was not the bars. Uh, they they wanted a safe place. And so together with a few other couples, they started a group that they called Daughters of Belitis. They called it that purposely because they thought no straight person would know who Belitis was. Belitis was a fictional character in a series of poems by uh, Pierre Louis about a bisexual woman who was supposedly around in Sappho's time. But only uh, literate, literary lesbians would know <laughs> that. So, so that's why they chose the name "Daughters of Belitis. But it it was uh, it didn't come out of the bars. It it came as an escape from the bars because uh, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon despaired that there was no other place where lesbians could socialize other than in the bars.
0: With the direction of lesbian activists like Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen, the DOB grew from a social organization to an activist one, eventually joining other homophile groups to march for gay rights several years before Stonewall. But this was the 1960s. Women's liberation was happening at the same time, and on a much larger scale than gay liberation. So after Stonewall, when new gay organizations like the Gay Liberation Front or the Gay Activist Alliance began claiming their own spaces for themselves, hosting dances away from the mafia-owned gay bars, the precursor to the Circuit Party, the lesbians looked at the spaces filled with shirtless men and said, we want our own spaces.
2: What happened that really created many, many alternative places for women was the rise of the lesbian feminist movement in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And of course, for men too, after Stonewall, there was the beginning of gay centers, now LGBTQ plus centers. I interviewed a number of women who were active in the early uh, GLF and GAA. And um, very quickly on, they formed, uh, one organization was Lesbian Feminists, they mm. call their organization. And another, I think they called themselves in the beginning, Gay women something or other. Um, but uh, they had gone to those dances, and this was the height of lesbian feminism, the height of the feminist movement. And they They felt that you know, it was ninety percent men, and they weren't particularly welcome and as one told me, the men sucked up all the air <laughs> and, and that this was the this was the days of a lot of hostility between feminists and and gay men uh, who were as suspicious of gay men as they were of of straight men um and so they they uh, did other things to socialize. One thing they they did is they uh, they opened bookstores, and they had readings of uh, lesbian writers. And then they um, opened uh, publishing houses. There, there were like a dozen publishing houses and, and so many newspapers that appealed uh, that were directed to the lesbian and lesbian feminist community. And then they had these huge music festivals uh, all over the country. The the most famous, the largest, was the Michigan Music Festival that went on for decades and and has just recently stopped. Um, But I I don't think bars were the big thing for lesbian feminists, which is not to say all the bars disappeared in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And and there were some wonderful bars in, in Los Angeles that kept going for years and years, Um, there was one that was very upscale called The Palms, Mm -hmm. uh, which was um, uh, in West Hollywood and just recently closed.
0: According to Faderman, lesbian bars started disappearing because with these new spaces, because lesbians now had the freedom to meet in places other than bars, there was no more demand.
2: Lesbian feminists had, had no interest in going out and and drinking, and they did other things to meet one another. And then, of course, uh, beginning in in the early 1970s, uh, gay community centers, or as they were called by the 1980s, lesbian and gay community centers began to emerge in big cities all over the country. Uh, And uh, lesbians often thought that these were pretty male-dominated and didn't have a lot of interest, but but there was outreach uh, for, for most in most of those gay community centers. Um, in In Los Angeles, uh, it started in the early 1970s. It was called the Gay Community Center. Uh, had a big sign on the roof called the Gay Community Center. A bunch of lesbians climbed up on the roof and painted "and lesbian," <laughs> so it was the gay and lesbian community center, and it was soon after that that the the name officially changed to the Gay and Lesbian Community Center. And lesbians did find uh, a home to some extent at the Gay and Lesbian Community Center, as it was called at that time.
0: Plus, at least compared to the late 1950s, it's much easier for lesbians to find one another now. Maybe lesbian bars just aren't necessary anymore.
2: My theory is that Institutions emerge to fulfill a demand, mm-hmm. and there just aren't enough lesbians who are demanding lesbian bars now, and I think they're not demanding lesbian bars because they have other ways to to hook up with one another. And, you know, having come out through the lesbian bar experience, uh, yeah, I, I I think it's sad that, That's fallen by the wayside. But when I came out, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have community centers. We didn't have the dino. We didn't have huge events where lesbians could meet one another. So I I think there are fewer lesbian bars because lesbians are not demanding those bars.
0: Faderman explains that lesbians now have a right that they previously lacked the right to claim otherwise straight spaces for themselves groups of lesbians can now show up to a straight bar and make it
2: lesbian it was certainly not an option in the mid 20th century and it is now you know i i think in a lot of straight bar if if they had music and two women wanted to dance i don't think the owners would say as they certainly would have in earlier eras get out of here you don't do that in this place you know, who, who would discriminate like that, especially since Los Angeles has a law against that kind of discrimination, and San Diego does too.
0: So with the rise of alternative lesbian spaces, demand for lesbian bars fell, which explains their disappearance. But their decline raises another question. Knowing that lesbians like Kelly exist, lesbians who do want bars for themselves, how do you create demand for something that no longer exists? And is there a chance that the decline of lesbian bars could be a symptom of another, more widespread problem? One that originates not with the fact that lesbians are sexually deviant, but because they're women. uh,
3: I'd I'd been thinking about Why isn't there a space that I can go to and like waiting for it to happen? And then at some point, um, because I'm working in architecture and I'm designing other people's visions, I came to the point where I was like, I wish someone would give me this project. I wish someone would ask me to design a lesbian bar. And then the next thought was, oh, I could actually maybe just do that.
0: Lauren Amador is a young architect from LA. She met me in a trendy cafe on the East Side where she told me about her creation, The Finger Joint. It's a lesbian bar that doesn't yet have a permanent home, but they're looking for one. Up until now, they've been hosting pop-ups, a bar that exists just for a few days, in galleries and other temporary spaces. But they're about to start their first round of fundraising for a brick-and-mortar space. And for Lauren, it's not just about demand for a lesbian bar among consumers. It's about ownership.
3: Almost all bars in L.A. period are owned by men. So I like to kind of look at it more from a perspective of gender and ownership, you know, and space than I do about making a place specific for some type of sexuality, right? Um, And a lot of uh, people who open, uh, open the gay bars in L.A., I mean, they did it a long time ago when it was... A little bit less expensive um and when it was really uh i don't know it was like a thriving time to do it and they lasted whereas there were only ever a couple lesbian bars but you can think about that as like there were there weren't that many women owning bars nightlife things you know and then i think the other thing is only four percent of restaurants owned by women make do over a million dollars a year right so whereas like 51 percent of restaurants are owned by women and you can think of like family style restaurants and whatnot so it's not that they lack ownership but it's that they lack um the funding and like the education to get big funding right so if you bootstrap a bar And you do it for, you know, a small business loan, um, it's not going to be that stable and it might not last past the five-year lease you have, which is really common, right? So the access men have to money for their projects, whether that's like literal access to people with money or like just an emboldened sense that they can go and ask for it, right?
0: People often don't understand how expensive it is to open a bar. A liquor license alone can cost up to $400,000. And they're often hoarded by restaurant conglomerates controlled by, you guessed it, men. So to raise this sort of money, you have to find investors. And doing that is much harder if you're a woman.
3: Yeah, so if you're opening a bar, um, you know, it's gonna take hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, and... um, yeah, you have to get investors for that kind of, unless you have the money yourself, right? And so just in general, women who start businesses, um, they do it on a way smaller scale. And I, and it's, you know, there's like a, a, that's a perspective that like, I think people should be talking more about. Like a lot of times you'll even hear about restaurants that are owned by women and there are articles about them. And, you know, they're kind of like women owned place. And then if you dig deeper, you find out that like, That place is actually owned by a restaurant group that's owned by men.
0: Then, on top of that problem, there's the issue of space. Yes, lesbians now have the ability to be themselves in straight and gay bars. But are those spaces really built for them?
3: Pretty much every single uh, bar space that I walk into in L.A., I'm a guest Right? So if I'm in like a you know straight, regular old bar, I'm a guest there. It's not for me, right? I'm not like the main participant. Um, and then when I walk into a, a gay bar, even though I'm so welcome there, right? Um, it's not for me. So like when I would go to RuPaul uh, screenings, I remember one of the times where I was like, I've had enough of this. <laughs> like something else needs to exist was that, consistently after the screening it would be shirtless night (laughs) and so you'd have like a room full of like women and men and non-binary people and you know enjoying this space together and then all of a sudden like all the men take off their shirts and all of a sudden you're like oh this is maybe not for me and they also don't really allow for like breathing room of a happy hour and like getting comfortable and maybe you don't like crowds, you wanna go when they open or, you know, um, and then building up to something more fun, you know, party like or whatever, like you go to a lesbian night and you're either there at an awkward time before it started, (laughs) right? You're like too early and you better have like pregame or you get there and you have to go from zero to 100 and then you can't even get a drink for 30 minutes because the bar's slam because these lesbian nights are slammed. They're yeah. so busy. They make the owners of those bars so much money on their off nights. They only schedule lesbian nights. Or Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Right, the nights that they need to, like, get a little bit more money. So we're giving all of our money to people who, you know, don't own space for us.
0: So that is where the finger joint comes in.
3: The dream is to open a really nice cocktail bar. That's that's something new because it's thinking about women first. How many cocktail bars do you know that are are thinking, oh, this place should be centered around not men, right? So it's actually a re- like it. That's the dream is just to see what we can come up with and and show people that. The old questions of like can this be profitable and like lesbians don't go out like i just want to snuff all of those things out and be like we've talked about that for 10 years we're thinking about it differently we're refocusing and then you know leave room like after the finger joint um leave room for many more of those things
0: and so far the pop-ups are proving that there is demand for this new type of lesbian bar
3: When we've done a, like, at a gallery and it's just, we send out an invite through Instagram, um, we've had up to, like, 400 people come through in a a night. One night. Yeah. (laughs) We often, like, sell out or run out of our cocktails. So we have, we don't have that problem. We never have, not even a single time.
0: And Lauren made something else clear. It's not about creating a space exclusively for lesbians, but one owned and built by lesbians. I, as a gay man, could go and enjoy myself. But I would probably act differently. I would act as a guest.
3: I think I've had a lot of really supportive gay men in my life bring, um, you know, their friends who are women or (laughs) not other gay men um, to pop-ups and just be really supportive and, like, buy a ton of drinks. (laughs) Like, you know, like... Um, just bring a good energy. And and it's really interesting that gay men have really enjoyed the pop-ups because it's a different type of space. Mm. And so um, I've only had uh, men kind of sit back a little bit, and it's a different energy, and it it feels really good. So I would definitely say um, not to take over lesbian and queer spaces like be really sensitive to that that's happened you know um and I think it's just an awareness thing because they come with so much energy and more money you know than we have so so it's not about saying we don't want you here but it's like refocus to be the guest and like the support you know I think it's been done where we're like no anyone allowed but it's it's problematic because you know I want, I want trans men to feel comfortable in the lesbian bar, right because it's a space that they, they also don't have. Um, and so it's none of my business what someone's gender is. Um, if they've like vibed with the energy and they can like pay attention and, and like feel comfortable and they feel like it's their space, then that makes sense that they should come.
0: Yeah. So you'd say we should still calm, spend our money, but just yeah. be respectful <laughs> spend and spend so
3: much money. <laughs> spend all of your money. <laughs> yeah, no, but really, like that's how you support businesses. You right. know, that's the that's like the easiest, simplest uh, way is to like not take up people's time, but then give them a lot of support. And even if it's just like spreading the word, um, that goes so. Far.
0: Maybe Professor Faderman and Lauren are both right. Maybe traditional lesbian bars really have lost demand because all sexual deviants can now claim straight bars and other alternative spaces for themselves. But the finger joint isn't a traditional lesbian bar for one crucial reason, ownership. As Professor Faderman explained to me after we talked, lesbian bars of the past were often owned by men, a straight couple or a lesbian's family members. There were for lesbians, but they were not run by lesbians. The patrons were guests in their own bars. The last lesbian bar in West Hollywood closed because a male landlord kicked them out. And if lesbians really do crave their own dedicated spaces as Kelly described and as the finger joint pop-ups prove, maybe a lesbian owned bar open to all but putting the lesbian first really could change the economics of gay LA. As for me, I want to do better. I've followed The Finger Joint on Instagram, and I absolutely plan on spending my dollars at the next Finger Joint pop-up bar with Kelly. After all, maybe the 34 gay bars in the city are enough. Maybe it's time for something new. Hi, it's me again. I'd like to thank Kelly Bailey, Professor Lillian Faderman, and Lauren Amador for helping me with this episode. Don't forget to check out Professor Faderman's book, Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, for more on the history of lesbianism in America. And you can find The Finger Joint at at thefingerjoint. And if you're interested in how the gay and lesbian movements work together in the decade before Stonewall, don't forget to pre-order my own book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, at ericservini.com slash book. See you next week on The Deviant's World.